Chapter Fifteen of Twelve Years a Slave by Solomon Northup. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In consequence of my inability in cotton picking, Epps was in the habit of hiring me out on sugar plantations during the season of cane cutting and sugar making. He received for my services a dollar a day, with the money supplying my place on his cotton plantation. Cutting cane was an employment that suited me and for three successive years i held the lead row at hawkins leading a gang of from fifty to an hundred hands in a previous chapter the mode of cultivating cotton is described this may be the proper place to speak of the manner of cultivating cane the ground is prepared in beds the same as it is prepared for the reception of the cotton seed except it is ploughed deeper drills are made in the same manner planting commences in january and continues until april it is necessary to plant a sugar field only once in three years three crops are taken before the seed or plant is exhausted three gangs are employed in the operation one draws the cane from the rick or stack cutting the top and flags from the stalk leaving only that part which is sound and healthy each joint of the cane has an eye like the eye of a potato which sends forth a sprout when buried in the soil Another gang lays the cane in the drill, placing two stalks side by side in such manner that joints will occur once in four or six inches. The third gang follows with hose, drawing earth upon the stalks and covering them to the depth of three inches. In four weeks, at the farthest, the sprouts appear above the ground, and from this time forward grow with great rapidity. A sugar field is hoed three times, the same as cotton, save that a greater quantity of earth is drawn to the roots. By the 1st of August, hoeing is usually over. About the middle of September, whatever is required for seed is cut and stacked in ricks, as they are termed. In October, it is ready for the mill or sugar house, and then the general cutting begins. The blade of a cane knife is 15 inches long, 3 inches wide in the middle, and tapering towards the point and handle. The blade is thin, and in order to be at all serviceable, must be kept very sharp. Every third hand takes the lead of two others, one of whom is on each side of him. The lead hand, in the first place, with a blow of his knife, shears the flags from the stalk. He next cuts off the top down as far as it's green. He must be careful to sever all the green from the ripe part, inasmuch as the juice of the former sours the molasses, and renders it unsaleable. Then he severs the stalk at the root and lays it directly behind him. His right and left-hand companions lay their stalks, when cut in the same manner, upon his. To every three hands there's a cart, which follows, and the stalks are thrown into it by the younger slaves, when it's drawn to the sugar-house and ground. If the planter apprehends a frost, the cane is winrowed. Winrowing is the cutting the stalks at an early period and throwing them lengthwise in the water furrow, in such a manner that the tops will cover the butts of the stalks. They will remain in this condition three weeks or a month without souring and secure from frost. When the proper time arrives, they are taken up, trimmed and carted to the sugar house. In the month of January, the slaves enter the field again to prepare for another crop. The ground is now strewn with the tops and flags cut from the past year's cane. On a dry day, fire is set to this combustible refuse, which sweeps over the field, leaving it bare and clean, and ready for the hose. The earth is loosened about the roots of the old stubble, 
and in process of time another crop springs up from the last year's seed. It is the same the year following, but the third year the seed has exhausted its strength, and the field must be ploughed and planted again. The second year the cane is sweeter and yields more than the first, and the third year more than the second. During the three seasons I laboured on Hawkins' plantation, I was employed a considerable portion of the time in the sugar house. He is celebrated as the producer of the finest variety of white sugar. The following is a general description of his sugar house and the process of manufacture. The mill is an immense brick building, standing on the shore of the bayou. Running out from the building is an open shed, at least an hundred feet in length, and forty or fifty feet in width. The boiler in which the steam is generated is situated outside the main building. The machinery and engine rest on a brick pier fifteen feet above the floor, within the body of the building. The machinery turns two great iron rollers, between two and three feet in diameter, and six or eight feet in length. They are elevated above the brick pier, and roll in towards each other. An endless carrier, made of chain and wood, like leathern belts used in small mills, extends from the iron rollers out of the main building and through the entire length of the open shed. The carts in which the cane is brought from the field as fast as it is cut are unloaded at the sides of the shed. All along the endless carrier are ranged slave children, whose business it is to place the cane upon it, when it is conveyed through the shed into the main building, where it falls between the rollers, is crushed, and drops upon another carrier that conveys it out of the main building in an opposite direction, depositing it in the top of a chimney upon a fire beneath, which consumes it. It is necessary to burn it in this manner, because otherwise it would soon fill the building, and more especially because it would soon sour and engender disease. The juice of the cane falls into a conductor underneath the iron rollers, and is carried into a reservoir. Pipes convey it from thence into five filterers, holding several hogsheads each. These filterers are filled with bone black, a substance resembling pulverized charcoal. It is made of bones calcinated in close vessels, and is used for the purpose of decolorizing, by filtration, the cane juice before boiling. Through these five filterers it passes in succession, and then runs into a large reservoir underneath the ground floor, from whence it is carried up, by means of a steam pump, into a clarifier made of sheet iron, where it is heated by steam until it boils. From the first clarifier it is carried in pipes to a second, and a third, and thence into close iron pans, through which tubes pass, filled with steam. While in a boiling state it flows through three pans in succession, and is then carried in other pipes down to the coolers on the ground floor. Coolers are wooden boxes with sieve bottoms made of the finest wire. As soon as the syrup passes into the coolers, and is met by the air, it grains, and the molasses at once escapes through the sieves into a cistern below. It is then white or loaf sugar of the finest kind, clear, clean, and as white as snow. When cool, it is taken out, packed in hogsheads, and is ready for market. The molasses is then carried from the cistern into the upper story again, and by another process converted into brown sugar. There are larger mills, and those constructed differently from the one thus imperfectly described, but none perhaps more celebrated than this anywhere on Bayou Boeuf. 
lambert of new orleans is a partner of hawkins he is a man of vast wealth holding as i have been told an interest in over forty different sugar plantations in louisiana the only respite from constant labor the slave has through the whole year is during the christmas holidays epps allowed us three others allow four five and six days according to the measure of their generosity it is the only time to which they look forward with any interest or pleasure they are glad when night comes not only because it brings them a few hours repose but because it brings them one day nearer christmas it is hailed with equal delight by the old and the young even uncle abram ceases to glorify andrew jackson and patsy forgets her many sorrows amid the general hilarity of the holidays it is the time of feasting and frolicking and fiddling the carnival season with the children of bondage they are the only days when they are allowed a little restricted liberty and heartily indeed do they enjoy it it is the custom for one planter to give a christmas supper inviting the slaves from neighbouring plantations to join his own on the occasion for instance one year it's given by epps the next by marshall the next by hawkins and so on usually from three to five hundred are assembled coming together on foot in carts on horseback on mules riding double and triple sometimes a boy and girl at others a girl and two boys and at others again a boy a girl and an old woman uncle abram astride a mule with aunt phoebe and patsy behind him trotting towards a christmas supper would be no uncommon sight on bayou berth then too of all days in the year they array themselves in their best attire the cotton coat has been washed clean the stump of a tallow candle has been applied to the shoes and if so fortunate as to possess a rimless or a crownless hat it is placed jauntily on the head they are welcomed with equal cordiality however if they come bareheaded and barefooted to the feast as a general thing the women wear handkerchiefs tied about their heads but if chance has thrown in their way a fiery red ribbon or a cast-off bonnet of their mistress grandmother it is sure to be worn on such occasions red the deep blood red is decidedly the favourite colour among the enslaved damsels of my acquaintance if a red ribbon does not encircle the neck you will be certain to find all the hair of their woolly heads tied up with red strings of some sort or another the table is spread in the open air and loaded with varieties of meat and piles of vegetables bacon and cornmeal at such times are dispensed with sometimes the cooking is performed in the kitchen on the plantation at others in the shade of wide branching trees in the latter case a ditch is dug in the ground and wood laid in and burned until it is filled with glowing coals over which chickens ducks turkeys pigs and not infrequently the entire body of a wild ox are roasted they are furnished also with flour of which biscuits are made and often with peach and other preserves with tarts and every manner and description of pies except the mince that being an article of pastry as yet unknown among them only the slave who has lived all the years on his scanty allowance of meal and bacon can appreciate such suppers white people in great numbers assemble to witness the gastronomical enjoyments they seat themselves at the rustic table the males on one side the females on the other 
the two between whom there may have been an exchange of tenderness invariably manage to sit opposite for the omnipresent cupid disdains not to hurl his arrows into the simple hearts of slaves unalloyed and exulting happiness lights up the dark faces of them all the ivory teeth contrasting with their black complexions exhibit two long white streaks the whole extent of the table all round the bountiful board a multitude of eyes roll in ecstasy giggling and laughter and the clattering of cutlery and crockery succeed cuffy's elbow hunches his neighbour's side impelled by an involuntary impulse of delight nelly shakes her finger at sambo and laughs she knows not why and so the fun and merriment flows on when the viands have disappeared and the hungry maws of the children of toil are satisfied then next in the order of amusement is the christmas dance my business on these gala days always was to play on the violin the african race is a music-loving one proverbially and many there were among my fellow bondsmen whose organs of tune were strikingly developed and who could thumb the banjo with dexterity but at the expense of appearing egotistical i must nevertheless declare that i was considered the la boule of bayou boeuf my master often received letters sometimes from a distance of ten miles requesting him to send me to play at a ball or festival of the whites he received his compensation and usually i also returned with many picayunes jingling in my pockets the extra contributions of those whose delight i had administered in this manner i became more acquainted than i otherwise would up and down the bayou the young men and maidens of holmesville always knew there was to be a jollification somewhere whenever platt epps was seen passing through the town with his fiddle in his hand where are you going now platt and what is coming off to-night platt would be interrogatories issuing from every door and window and many a time when there was no special hurry yielding to pressing importunities platt would draw his bow and sitting astride his mule perhaps discourse musically to a crowd of delighted children gathered around him in the street alas had it not been for my beloved violin i scarcely can conceive how i could have endured the long years of bondage it introduced me to great houses relieved me of many days labour in the field supplied me with conveniences for my cabin with pipes and tobacco and extra pairs of shoes and oftentimes led me away from the presence of a hard master to witness scenes of jollity and mirth it was my companion the friend of my bosom triumphing loudly when i was joyful and uttering its soft melodious consolations when i was sad often at midnight when sleep had fled affrighted from the cabin and my soul was disturbed and troubled with the contemplation of my fate it would sing me a song of peace on holy sabbath days when an hour or two of leisure was allowed it would accompany me to some quiet place on the bayou bank and lifting up its voice discourse kindly and pleasantly indeed it heralded my name round the country made me friends who otherwise would not have noticed me gave me an honoured seat at the yearly feasts and secured the loudest and heartiest welcome of them all at the christmas dance the christmas dance o oh, ye pleasure-seeking sons and daughters of idleness who move with measured step listless and snail-like through the slow winding cotillon if you wish to look upon the celerity if not the poetry of motion upon genuine happiness rampant and unrestrained 
go down to louisiana and see the slaves dancing in the starlight of a christmas night on that particular christmas i have now in my mind a description whereof will serve as a description of the day generally miss lively and mr sam the first belonging to stuart the latter to roberts started the ball it was well known that sam cherished an ardent passion for lively as also did one of marshall's and another of carey's boys for lively was lively indeed and a heart-breaking coquette withal it was a victory for sam roberts when rising from the repast she gave him her hand for the first figure in preference to either of his rivals they were somewhat crestfallen and shaking their heads angrily rather intimated they would like to pitch into sam and hurt him badly but not an emotion of wrath ruffled the placid bosom of samuel as his legs flew like drumsticks down the outside and up the middle by the side of his bewitching partner the whole company cheered them vociferously and excited with the applause they continued tearing down after all the others had become exhausted and halted a moment to recover breath but sam's superhuman exertions overcame him finally leaving lively alone yet whirling like a top thereupon one of sam's rivals pete marshall dashed in and with might and main leaped and shuffled and threw himself into every conceivable shape as if determined to show miss lively and all the world that sam roberts was of no account pete's affection however was greater than his discretion such violent exercise took the breath out of him directly and he dropped like an empty bag then was the time for harry carey to try his hand but lively also soon outwinded him amidst hurrahs and shouts fully sustaining her well-earned reputation of being the fastest gal on the bayou one set off another takes its place he or she remaining longest on the floor receiving the most uproarious commendation and so the dancing continues until broad daylight it does not cease with the sound of the fiddle but in that case they set up a music peculiar to themselves this is called patting accompanied with one of those unmeaning songs composed rather for its adaptation to a certain tune or measure than for the purpose of expressing any distinct idea the patting is performed by striking the hands on the knees then striking the hands together then striking the right shoulder with one hand the left with the other all the while keeping time with the feet and singing perhaps this song harper's creek and roaring river there my dear we'll live forever den we'll go to de injun nation all i want in dis creation is pretty little wife and big plantation chorus up dat oak and down dat river two overseers and one little nigger or if these words are not adapted to the tune called for it may be that old hog-eye is a rather solemn and startling specimen of versification not however to be appreciated unless heard at the south it runneth as follows who's been here since i've been gone pretty little gal with a josie on hog-eye old hog-eye and hosey too never see de like since i was born here come a little gal with a josie on hog-eye old hog-eye and hosey too or maybe the following perhaps equally nonsensical but full of melody nevertheless as it flows from the negro's mouth ebo dick and jerdon's joe them two niggers stole my yo 
chorus hop jim along walk jim along talk jim along etc old black dan as black as tar he damn glad he was not dar hop jim along etc during the remaining holidays succeeding christmas they are provided with passes and permitted to go where they please within a limited distance or they may remain and labour on the plantation in which case they are paid for it it is very rarely however that the latter alternative is accepted they may be seen at these times hurrying in all directions as happy-looking mortals as can be found on the face of the earth they are different beings from what they are in the field the temporary relaxation the brief deliverance from fear and from the lash producing an entire metamorphosis in their appearance and demeanour in visiting riding renewing old friendships or perchance reviving some old attachment or pursuing whatever pleasure may suggest itself the time is occupied such is southern life as it is three days in the year as i have found it the other three hundred and sixty-two being days of weariness and fear and suffering and unremitting labour marriage is frequently contracted during the holidays if such an institution may be said to exist among them the only ceremony required before entering into that holy estate is to obtain the consent of the respective owners either party can have as many husbands or wives as the owner will permit and either is at liberty to discard the other at pleasure the law in relation to divorce and to bigamy and so forth is not applicable to property of course if the wife does not belong on the same plantation with the husband the latter is permitted to visit her on saturday nights if the distance is not too far uncle abram's wife lived seven miles from epps on bayou huff power he had permission to visit her once a fortnight but he was growing old as has been said and truth to say had latterly well nigh forgotten her uncle abram had no time to spare from his meditations on general jackson connubial dalliance being well enough for the young and thoughtless but unbecoming a grave and solemn philosopher like himself End of chapter 15